Welcome to the Advancing Women Podcast, where ambitious women come together to challenge the status quo, advance their careers, and up-level their lives. The Advancing Women Podcast is hosted by gender equity expert and executive coach, Dr. Kimberly D. Simone. Welcome, warriors, to the Advancing Women Podcast. I know that Super Bowl Sunday is this upcoming weekend, and many of us have one thing and one thing only on our mind, football. Just kidding. We all know that it's just as much about the ads, maybe more, as it is about the game. We'll no doubt be talking about those Super Bowl ads before, during, and after the game. So it is the perfect time to talk about women in advertising on the Advancing Women podcast, the good and the bad. We'll talk today about women in leadership in advertising and women in the ads themselves. And so I am delighted to introduce you to today's guest, Kim Allen who is the Chief Executive Officer at Dixon Schwabel Advertising Agency. How do you get to be CEO? Well, Kim has a proven track record of leadership development, strategic marketing, plan development and execution, crisis management, and public relations. She has specialized skills, including leadership, employee relations, internal communications, social media, digital communications, influencer marketing, sales, media relations, and community relations. She is known for putting people front and center, building on empathy and quick decision-making that have served her teams well. She has worked her way up to that top role. A graduate of Ithaca College with a degree in communications, Kim began her career in public relations in 1996 as an administrative assistant at Eric Mower and Associates. She soon found her home with Dixon Schwabel in 2001, where she led their public relations team and expanded her skill set. In 2012, she took the role of managing partner, and not long after, in 2020, she took the helm, guiding her agency into a new era. Kim is a 40 under 40 winner and Athena Young Professional. She is DEI certified and sits on numerous boards. And I found this quote too, Kim, that I want to share with listeners in an article about your appointment to CEO. You said, quote, I've always been up for a challenge, even as a young girl. All someone had to do was tell me I couldn't. Challenge accepted. I love that. And I love this, Kim, too, I have to mention as a Buffalo Bills fan. And I won't even go into that heartache. But I love how your bio says, quote, Kim is a mom of two children. She resides in Victor with her kids and her husband, Josh, not the Buffalo Bills quarterback. (laughs) That actually made me laugh out loud when I read it. I'm so excited to have you here on the Advancing Women podcast to share your insight and expertise. Welcome. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, you'd be amazed at how many times we try to make dinner reservations. And when we get there, the host or hostess says, oh, we thought you were the quarterback. (laughs) So I'm going to start by asking you a bit about how you got to that top level role. Like, were there unique barriers as a woman? How does having more women at the top in this industry matter? Because I think that's really an important part of the conversation. Yeah, I think it's an important part of the conversation too. And I reflect on this often. Two things. There's two parts to that question. How did I get here? And then do I think it makes a difference when there's women in leadership in the marketing community? So I did not um, grow up thinking I wanted to be a CEO. I grew up with lots of feedback about how I had attributes that might be good for a CEO. And I reflect on, did that stuff settle inside me? Because there were um, what we nowadays would say is not positive language for a young woman to call somebody bossy or um, talkative or overly social. I often wonder if those things sunk in the back of my head somewhere and made me start believing that 
there was something to this. She has leadership qualities. Yeah, it is interesting. There's a good amount of research that shows that we have gendered language, right? And we have words that we associate with different genders and then with leadership. And often words that are more associated with men tend to be more associated with leadership. And there is a definite inequity. I've talked about this before, but I remember seeing a meme once that said, well, what's the difference between assertive and aggressive? And the other little cartoon character says, your gender. And I think that it's some of the things you're talking about, but you're right that those titles may not have been accurate, but they were indicative maybe of the kinds of qualities. Telling you that you were bossy was their way of saying you could lead. You took away the positives, right? Well, I think what happens is throughout your life then, the narrative starts getting built and repeated. And so it must be true if my grammar school teacher is saying it and then I get to high school, they don't know each other and they're saying the same things about me. And then I start my dance journey, which was the extracurricular activity that I participated in. And they are saying similar things. And my family says similar things, the positive things and the narrative that was built through my life. And we all have the self-talk that we create that came from the language that people were using. I think because of that, I never thought this wouldn't be a possibility for me. I didn't necessarily see barriers or recognize barriers. And sometimes I have to be honest, I'm a pretty vulnerable person and I'll just share. I can beat myself up for not seeing some of the blatant things that were happening in front of me and realizing that they were wrong because I think I was just like, this is just how it is. I can do this. Yeah. I think sometimes there's this fallacy that if you want to get ahead as a woman. And I, and it bothers me because it's almost like you're either this, it's not fair, smash the patriarchy, women get a raw deal and, and we need to scream about it, which there's value in that, right? We have to hold up to the light, distasteful social constructs that hold women back. But then there's, well, yeah, but how does that serve you in terms of you have to transcend and thrive? So then you've got this overcorrection of suck it up. If you got to work twice as hard, do it. There's something to the balance of saying both are important, forewarned is forearmed. And if you see the bias, it's not about complaining. It's about saying there's some unique biases here. So I have to be strategic and intentional in the way I handle this versus um, not seeing it or being blind to it and then being blindsided by this bias. But then also saying, you know, it's not fair. It's not my fault. But at the end of the day, I want what I want. So what do I have to do to transcend Absolutely. That's exactly right. And you know, I have only had two jobs in my career and I've been here at Dixon Trouble for 20 years. My previous employer was an amazing organization, much larger, and it had a hierarchy. And I did notice that there weren't a lot of female leaders at the top. They had a 10-person leadership team, perhaps one woman on that 10-person leadership team. But at my department level, when you read that I was the administrative assistant for the public relations department, that's the entry point to be able to grow in your career in our business. Usually, if you are going to enter right out of college, it's usually in that assistant type role so you can learn from the ground up. And that department was 99% female. I think there were six people and only one male. And so right away, right away, go sign my career was surrounded by female leaders. Above that, there weren't female leaders. And so that's actually one of the reasons I left the organization. There was a lot of lip service about, we see you as somebody who could grow and thrive here as a leader, but I didn't see any females growing and thriving at that senior level. I love that you make that point. And I want to say two things about it because there's so much I could say on all of that. But the first is so much of my research and including my dissertation, which has the words broken pipeline in the title, 
is when we hear, oh, it's so much better. It's a lot better at the middle, but Mm -hmm. not much better at the top. So it is a pyramid. When you have 50% of middle leadership being women and under 10% of the very top C-suite type of roles being women, there's a broken pipeline here. And I love that you talk about outcomes because so often we measure how a company's doing by their lip service, to your point, and also by their initiatives. We've got all these advancing women diversity initiatives, and often those are fix the women, fix the problem. Like, we don't have women top leaders, so why don't you get a mentor and you learn how to be more confident? And there's this premise that somehow you could mentor, sponsor, or workshop your way out of a system of bias and barriers that keeps highly talented and qualified women from achieving that highest level. And I think that is such an important point. We have to look at organizations from the top, not from the middle, because that's where the problem is. But we also have to look at- the policies are set. Right. If you have a policy that says, we're going to do all these things to advance women, and five years later, you still have one woman out of 10, then you've got to take a step back. And when I was working on my dissertation, I saw this article that said this particular company had fixed their diversity problem. And I was like, awesome, it's fixed. Let me go look at their board of directors and let me go look at their CEO and let me go look at their executive suite. And I was like, You haven't fixed it. It's like you have two women now and you had two women eight years ago. You've done a lot of things that have allowed you to kind of punch as pilot your way out of culpability, but not that have moved the needle. So I think you're exactly right. I think that's why it's so important when a woman like you has that role in an organization like yours, because it says to all women, this is a real opportunity for you. This is possible here. It's not just something we talk about, but it's something that can happen. Normalizes it. Absolutely. I will say one caveat to that is when the company puts a woman in that highest level position and then they're like, we're good. We're not going to do much more than that because we've proven ourselves. The good news is the research shows that women, when they are there, step in and they help fix the problem. And I I think that's so important because too often the media perpetuates the story of the queen bee and women who don't help women. But the research is really clear. The data show that the more women are on boards, the more women get put on boards. The more women in leadership, the more women advance. So um, that's a really important part of it. So when women are in this industry, what does that mean? I think it means all the things you just outlined. I think it means that there's an understanding of the value in having women in leadership for an organization, not only from a mentorship perspective and ensuring that um, they are guiding other women through the organization and making sure that there is a um, balanced and equity to who is sitting in leadership positions at the organization. But I think all the wonderful things that uh, we bring to the table um, start happening for the organization. And there's value in everybody and every human being, but there are also constants with um, genders. Absolutely. When you lean into the strength of a woman and balance that with the strengths that the other genders provide, you can be a powerhouse. And I'm very lucky to be at a place that has recognized that very early on. I had an episode before the holidays called The Power of the She Economy. Mm-hmm. And I've always found it so interesting how, you know, you're in marketing, you're in advertising, women buy products. And so to not have the input of the group that makes like 87%-ish, depending on what kind of products you're talking about, part of the communication efforts. Uh, If there was one industry that should have more women, you'd think it would be this one where you need to be speaking to this group because they are 
almost twice as likely to be the decision maker or the purchaser of goods, which is what advertising is really about. So it should be unexpected, I think, to see more men in an industry that makes decisions that impact the way we speak to women about what they're going to purchase. There's been a lot of pushback, and I'm going to transition a little bit into the misrepresentation, that kind of movement to acknowledge the role of, and to a degree, hold media accountable for contributing to the underrepresentation of women in positions of power and influence in America in terms of the way we portray women. And I'm not just talking about the sexualization of women, which is part of it. There's a quote from misrepresentation that I'll use here, quote, in a society where media is the most persuasive force shaping cultural norms, the collective message we receive is that a woman's value and power lie in her beauty and sexuality and not in her capacity as leader, end quote. And so you have to ask the question, when more women lead in an industry that is known for perhaps not portraying women in that light, how does that impact? Can you think of times where you've been sitting at the table and you've said, yeah, no, that's not going to work at all. And I was just wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think, again, because we have a leadership team and, and an organization that is more diverse than others in the female to male ratio. Um, our work tends to represent that, but industry-wide, you're right. If we talk about the media industry and zoom away from the marketing industry, there's a, a massive issue. I do think there seems to be some traction happening. If you look at what um, Lego has done, if you look at old Navy, if you look at some of the, um, home care and cleaning uh, consumer product brands, they are starting to um, flip the script a little bit and, and have different representation. Oddly enough, it's the beauty industry that hasn't figured it out. And that's an industry that tends to have a high volume of female leadership. Yeah. Sometimes there's um, adapting to a status quo in industries where the status quo is really valued. And so one of the coping strategies for women who advance is to assimilate. And so that's always a challenge. And I think one of the difficult things, especially for women, because we have to work harder for the professional capital and for the professional cachet. But I also think we're seeing, as you're saying, this opportunity that's Mm -hmm. emerging. It's kind of like get on the train or it's going to leave without you a little bit right now. Well, it does have a momentum building effect. Lego was one of the first brands to take this head on and start creating products and then marketing their products that were not gender specific. And they were starting to pull young females into their marketing and their advertising to show what's possible. And soon thereafter, you started to see other brands catch on. And that's the thing about our industry that much like yours, it's data-based, right? When you are looking to create a campaign and to understand what's going to move the needle, the first thing you do is go figure out who the audience is for it. And the only way you figure out who the audience is for it is to do research and find data. And there's always a core audience. There's always the audience that's most likely to purchase the product. And then there's the influencer audience. And guess who makes up the large majority of that influencer audience? It's female. So it doesn't matter who the core is um, because females often make the purchasing decisions for the home. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's funny. I worked in consumer products industry in my Fortune 500 days, and you have these three competing priorities, which is the person who uses the product is not always the person who buys the product, and it is not always the buyer at retail who buys the product. 
if I'm selling a product to a child, I've got to think about what's going to make the child happy to ask for the toy. What's going to make mom feel good about buying the toy and what's going to make the buyer actually buy the toy. And so you're trying to balance all of those things, knowing that, you know, you've got that complexity. And I think it's interesting that you talk about it. Now, can you think of, even if it's an example elsewhere where you've seen somebody get it wrong and then fix it, or you've kind of looked and said, you could not have possibly had a woman or a person of color in the room when you said that was okay. Or if they were in the room, they did not feel confident to have voice and to challenge Oh yeah, um, because I think that's such a big part of it. So I wondered if you could speak to that a little bit, because I actually have seen you talk about this and about how important it is to be able to challenge and to have a person with voice at the table. I'll talk not a specific example, but a little bit more of a broader example. And it, it more lies in the area of um, racial diversity, but we have broadened our scope just as a function of the conversation. Um, our work is created by our people who work here, right? That's we're a marketing agency who employs people who create advertising campaigns. And we have a disgustingly low diversity rate as it relates to cultural diversity. Um, our gender diversity is wonderful. Our um, sexual orientation diversity is not too shabby, but when it comes to people of color, we just don't have high representation. And so with the murder of George Floyd and this sort of uh, cultural awakening that happened in the civil unrest in 2020, um, we faced that head on and started looking at our work. And it was like, it was like the shades were pulled up. And then then you're kind of ashamed of it. So how did we not realize that when we don't have diverse perspectives at the table, our work isn't representative? Yeah. It's- well, you know, there's a book called Justice by a Sandal. And it, I might get the quote not exactly right, but it's something to the effect of we recognize and learn justice through the experience of injustice. And I noticed that your organization is part of uh, Rochester's Racial Equity and Justice Initiative, Interrupt Racism. Interrupt Racism. Dr. King said so beautifully, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So Interrupt Racism is a summit that was hosted in 2020. I believe that was its inaugural year by the Urban League of Rochester. So we had a relationship built with the Urban League for a couple of years heading into the movement that started happening in 2020. And so when we knew we needed to do some deep introspective thinking about our role in systemic racism and the unconscious bias that exists within all of us and the responsibility that we have as an organization that operates as part of a community and however you define community, it could be our community of people. It could be the community that we actually reside in. It can be the community of the world. Um, We wanted to go many layers deeper than we were prior to. We had done work on it and our, our work was squarely focused on workforce diversity. And so we needed to go much broader than that. So we heard about the interrupt racism summit and we had, um, Two of our individuals, our president, Jessica Savage, who leads our initiatives around diversity, equity, and inclusion and action. We add the word action into that. And then our head of people um, and development, Britt Louie, both participate in the summit um, over the course of several days where you absorb content and learnings that you can then take back into the organization. And then that's when you, um, on my email sign off, you'll see that we're a proud supporter of 
interrupt racism. So I did see that. And it makes me think of the intersectionality of problems. The way women are portrayed in ads has an impact. The way women of color are portrayed in ads has an impact and representation matters. And so when you are making those kinds of choices and decisions, it's hard to detangle all of those pieces because they're all problematic. If a percentage of the population that's constantly changing if people don't see themselves, I always think that's one of the key tenets of a good ad. It is resonating. You know, bad ads, you kind of look at them and you go, who talks like that? You know, that is always the like, wow, wow how is that? Yeah. yeah. No, like you'll, they'll show women together. Talk. I'm like, women don't talk like that. No, like right. you look at your husband, you're like, no, we never, we never like, talk about that. Ever. I can tell you who made that ad. Right. Exactly. Like no woman said, yeah, that's a great ad. I can promise. <laughs> so I was wondering about when you're looking at ads, you're at this top level. What does it mean to have a woman at that top level? How does that manifest in day-to-day changes? Like, what are the actions that come as you see those ads? How does it manifest? Well, for us, it always manifests from the grassroots. So we have a very, um, an organization that's built on trust so that there's no barriers to speaking your mind or finding a channel for your voice. And so when we started evaluating and doing that deep introspective work and and back to that noticing that, Hey, we all look the same here and we can stomp our feet all day long to say, this is an industry problem. It has been forever. There's only 3% representation and there's no candidates and it's hard to recruit. Okay. So what are we going to do about it? How can we today, because this is a something that takes effect over time. I can't change the complexion of my workforce overnight, but we need to affect the complexion of our work immediately. And so what are we going to do about it? So those voices from the ranks rise up and start to form ideas for what this might look like. And we uh, at our organization decided to form a panel, which has rotating participants. So when I say panel, I think sometimes people think we have these set individuals who we access and it's Mm -hmm. always the same, but it's not. We went out and had conversations with people within our networks and asked, would you be willing to be available periodically to come review our work so that when that work is ready for prime time, it is as representative as it can be. And it's not just um, being viewed through only our lens. I love that. And it's also a mindset of, you can either say what's right with our work or what's wrong with our work. Mm-hmm. And I know that when I, again, I worked in the toy industry and we had whole safety committees whose job was not to say your toy is safe, but to say, show me all the ways this toy could hurt a child. Tell me all the ways this could be dangerous. And it's very different to have a panel of people who look at your work and judge it on creativity and humor and all of these things, which are important. I'm not taking away the complexities of creativity to make an ad successful. But at the same time, sometimes we can look at an ad and say, well, that's really entertaining or we we really like it, which is very different from saying, what bothers you about this ad? What could offend a person about this? And you said this before, you can either go, I don't see how that's offensive. Or you can say, no, I want to know how you might find this offensive. Yes. And I think that you're asking those kinds of questions is really important. Yeah. I think it's really dangerous if we don't. And I think that's another thing that female leaders bring to the table is that there is an awareness of the larger scope of possibilities, as opposed to a restriction on what is right for just me. There's a very distinct difference between this notion of an open mind to the opinions of others versus the interest of one. How can others collaborate with me to drive our value higher. I think that's a great point. And part of that is, I mean, we have a history. 
we are a society that was designed by men for men. And we all do things that serve us. When I try to think about what my week's going to look like, I design it in a way that works for my family. And that's not a bad thing necessarily. What becomes a bad thing is when things change and you are hesitant to see that maybe what has always worked isn't um, going to work for everyone. And so I guess there's this kind of default that we have to get past the default vantage point. And sometimes there's this backlash like, well, you're so interested in the opinion of women or you're so interested in the perspective of persons of color. What about this other perspective? But we have had that perspective for a long time. It's not that it's unimportant. There's just not a deficit in that perspective to the degree of the deficit in these other perspectives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that is something that is a principle of ours. Singular perspectives do not great work make. Yeah. So, you know, and we study um, the Great Place to Work Institute is the organization that certifies organizations to be a great place to work. And yeah. about seven years ago, they got a new CEO and the CEO made it his singular intention to bring this idea of inclusivity to organizations who were great places to work, because if you're not inclusive, you can't be great. And so he added great place to work for all. Now is that, that Michael? Michael Bush. In the notes, I'll put a link to a great place to work's website too, as well, if people want to take a look at that, because giving people the tools to say, I'm not exactly sure. There's nothing wrong with saying, I know there's a problem. I want to fix the problem. I'm not sure how to fix the problem and to reach out and get the help, the insight, the, as you've kind of noted here, that, you know, outsider perspective. Isn't the beauty in that, the fact that you're even thinking about, I want to know better, but I'm fearful that I can't. Yeah. But yeah, I think that vulnerability is really something to behold. And I would argue that as women, we are more comfortable in vulnerability. Mm -hmm. We have walked in vulnerability longer and it can be sometimes called lack of confidence, but that's a negative narrative as opposed to a openness to what you don't know and how you might be able to find that out. And I do want to go back for a second because here you are, you're the CEO, you're super badass, even though you're like super chill. There's no doubting what you've accomplished and how important it is, but there may be this tendency to think that it's better. And advertising still very much has a gender problem. Yes. And there have been a lot of controversial comments that we've heard from men in leadership in industry who have talked about this. And I'm thinking about Kevin Roberts from Sashi and Sashi arguing about gender. This debate is over. And the controversial comments made by Justin Tindall when he said that he was, quote, bored of diversity being prioritized over talent. And I hate that comment, like you're either talking about talent or you're talking about diversity, which is really very telling in and of itself. So what do we do? 15% of creative directors worldwide are women. And so how do we, and not that I'm asking you to solve the problems of the world, Kim, but how do we help women transcend this male-dominated industry where still there's this hesitation to believe, and I think this is so dangerous in terms of advancing women, and I talk about it a lot on the podcast, this idea that we're all good. Like we've got it covered because people don't have empathy or want to fix something if it's not really a problem. I mean, to sit there and say, well, there's really not a diversity problem when 15% of creative directors worldwide are women, most CEOs are men. It's kind of insulting to say that you've fixed the problem. And I guess I take 
particular offense to the idea that I'm supposed to be grateful for better when the goal is equity and equality for all, not better than. Right. Yeah. I think I can speak just from our own experience and in our workforce, our chief creative officer is a man. And then he has three associate creative directors um, who work just a step underneath him. And one is a man and the other two are women. And it would be easy for us to say, well, we, we're doing okay. Like we're good. So I think the answer to your question is you notice, you own it and you keep working because what I and Jessica tried to do is make sure that we're still asking ourselves the tough questions. And we're not just getting too far in the weeds of we've arrived. We have two female associate creative directors. And instead we're making sure that the chief creative officer and the other associate creative director who happens to be male are building community with one another and building career pathways and are finding ways to be empathetic to how it might feel to see that, you know, there's not a pathway for me to chief creative officer. And I feel like I don't have community as a woman in this space. I have one other person there and my boss is male. And how can you help me feel like I'm a part of the decision-making on this leadership team? And so our chief creative officer works very actively at that. And I think it's because Jessica and I, and he have such a relationship where we can say this could get bad if we don't notice that we have to constantly work at it. So there is no such thing in anything in life as one and done, or you've checked the box and you move on, right? We all should be constantly working at these things. But if there's a lack of willingness to do that, and instead you're saying things like I'm bored with it because it's hard, that's really <laughs> right. It right. Means it's too hard for me and I don't want to deal with it. I got better things to do. This is a powerful message to anybody who's looking to work for you. And I love that you're engaging male allyship and understanding that, um, men have to also be a part of the solution because through no fault of anyone's, you know, if I'm a man and I've got three people working for me, homophily theory, birds of a feather flock together. It is easy to see how you might connect more with a man if you're a man or a woman with a woman. Mm -hmm. And so you do see scenarios like what you're talking about all the time, where there is this male leader and he's got three people working for him, two are female and one are male. And he does actually connect with the male more. I'm not saying it happens all the time. There are men who connect well with women and women who connect well with men and everything in between. But to say, I have to be aware that I am likely to have a stronger connection potentially with a male. And so I have to kind of take a step back and interrupt that is really important. Because I mean, it's silly, like all things being equal, if I were to interview two people and they were equally qualified and one had curly hair and one had straight hair, I would like inadvertently be more likely to hire the curly haired, right? I would just hire the curly haired person, which is so silly. But, you know, I think it speaks to bias is not evil. It is a part of the human condition. We are all in this world living and having separate and different experiences and all and different data points that are hardwired for it. Right. We're hardwired to make quicker, easier decisions. Otherwise, we'd be exhausted. So right. I think you're right. And it's not about the individual decisions that you make necessarily. It's the culmination of all of those decisions and where do you end up at the end. And so when you're talking to your Uh, creative officer, the idea that I've got to be really mindful that I've got these three people and, you know, two of them are women and one of them are men. So if the next person promoted ends up being that man, and I'm not saying it shouldn't be, maybe it should, but 
Am I being honest about all of the reasons shining a light on my implicit bias, my unconscious bias, the very reality of being a human? When you have a woman CEO, I do think knowing there's a person who's going to be like, are you sure? Because 66% of your choices were women and 33 were men. And I want you to defend that a little bit. Um, I think there's something to that. Um, not that I'm implying that people have to defend themselves to you, but I think there's something to that level of accountability and that understanding of the commitment that matters. Well, and then you layer in the industry statistics that we're, we've been talking about. There's just low representation. And so, yes, it is my job to challenge everything. It's a function of what I do. I have to challenge every decision that's being made and made, make sure that it's being looked at from a 360 degree view viewpoint. Um, but if we're not, then we're just continuing to perpetuate the problem. It's, it's, it's not unlike saying, well, my decision is that you just have to make one of those females the next chief creative officer because we don't want to continue to be part of the problem. That's not the right thing to do either. Well, right, because then you get into these problems where the solution can cause more problems. It's very frustrating when there's this mentality of tokenism, mm-hmm. which then sets the woman up for failure or puts her in a position that she's less likely to be supported, less likely to be seen as competent. People see what they want to see a lot of the time. And if you're looking for a person to get it wrong, it's confirmation bias, right? I am looking for you to confirm that we only put you there for this reason. And so even though that person may very well be the most qualified, you've got this kind of viewpoint from outsiders where they're looking to find reasons for that not to be the case. And if you look for them, often you'll find them. And that then perpetuates a bigger problem and suggests that somehow it's mutually exclusive. Like I've got to either pick a woman or the more qualified candidate. And I always find that so frustrating. You can do both. So what are you thinking with the Super Bowl ads? Are you expecting to see any big differences, big changes? Do you guys look at ads after and say, wow, look at this. They really got it wrong. When you see something like that, do you learn from those? How does this all work for you guys? We actually have a whole process around it, which is kind of cool. And we're just digging into it um, to get ourselves prepared for what's coming up. Um, But we have a review panel that's hosted for the entire organization and our creative leadership Uh, those three individuals plus the chief creative officer facilitate a conversation at 10 o'clock in the morning on Monday. We've done this, gosh, this will probably be our sixth or seventh year now where we are evaluating the work as a group. And these kinds of discussions happen because I think the discourse around this is another important function of this conversation is to be able to have open dialogue. Our work is very subjective. And I think that's an important point to make for all the reasons we're talking about why we need representation at the table, because subjectivity is a core tenant of the work that we do. Um, So yes, it started as something fun to do. It was more of a team building activity, but over the years it has become an educational source for our team. Um, So we're very deliberate about it. To answer your question about what I'm expecting to see, um, every year you get to see the ads early. They release them um, sometimes weeks in advance and they're out there right now and I haven't dug in um, kind of on purpose. because Same, even before this conversation, I didn't want to get derailed into getting into one ad. So I'm glad we're having this conversation, but it'll be interesting as listeners hear this episode drop to see what, what they see and feel and think about and comment on. Well, I hope it puts a different lens on it for them. I hope this conversation opens their mind to uh, female representation in marketing and advertising, and they start viewing the advertisements through that lens. It would be interesting to hear from them if they viewed 
uh, the ads differently than they had in years past. Yeah, I really love what you said about subjectivity. When you look at advertising, there's two areas, and I think it's profound what you've said, which is the ads themselves, the way that the creative comes across has a lot of subjectivity. So we're really talking about two things. The way that the women are portrayed or whether they're seen as leadership or strong versus looking at the quantitative measures of there are only this many CEOs where you can objectively say women are underrepresented in this field. So your job's harder in some ways because people can sit and say to me, well, I don't think that's true. I think it's really hard now for men to get to CEO roles. I'm like, well, the data just doesn't support that. You know, 92% of CEOs are men. And so it may feel a particular kind of way, but the data is really clear versus a creative area where it's a little bit easier to dig your heels in the sand and say, I don't actually agree that that is objectively wrong as opposed to subjectively wrong. So I think you work in a, a very interesting field in that you have to navigate those waters. Right. And I think that's why we rely so heavily on our own research and data to inform the process. Folks who aren't in the industry, I don't know what they conceive of the process of creating work like this is, but it's actually pretty intricate and involved. And it starts with research. It doesn't start with an idea. You don't sit in a room like in the movies and you just say, what if we... Yeah, it's less madmen than we right. have grown to think. I think that's true. I think that people don't realize that it's art and science. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. We, we call it soul and science. Um, oh, I love that. Well, nowadays you have to bring humanity to your work. There, there was, was a day and time in our work where the artistry was front and center, but humanity is front and center now. It has to be informed by something. If And it is money motivated, right? We are trying to get people to purchase something. And so we have to look into the audience data to say what makes them most likely to purchase this, what images, what colors, what words, what's the environment it needs to be created in. And then you have to find the white space for your particular brand, right? Because there's other brands shouting at them about the same product and service that they can offer. Why is yours different for that audience? That's where you want to play. And then it's still going to be subjective. <laughs> yeah. In some ways, you know, it's easy to look at advertising and say, well, you know, it's all about selling ads and it's all about money and money drives the decisions. But the flip side of that, and I think the positive side of that is that there is power in the consumer voice yes. and the consumer is women. And so on the positive side of that, all of a sudden we're seeing women stepping into that power and saying, I have the power with my dollars to not support someone who isn't doing the right thing. And so, of course, obviously doing the right thing for the sake of doing the right thing is ideal, but ultimately anything that helps people do the right thing. And if money is part of the motivation and if the consequence of getting it wrong is a financial implication, then that can be a positive. And we create culture. Marketers play such a huge role and have such a great responsibility in the culture and the way it's created. And I think reflecting it, you know, I would argue this. If you went a hundred years from now and you said, how can I understand what mattered to people in 2022? you would look to the ads. We could look at the way women are portrayed in the 1970s, the 1980s, and we can see shifts in the cultural dynamic where more women were entering the workforce in large numbers. And there was this whole like, um, remember the Anjali commercial? I can bring home the bacon and fry it up in a pan. And so we were still struggling with the superwoman and I've got to be able to do both. I can't give up any of those things. And of course we still struggle with that, but you see how that messaging doesn't resonate the same way that it used to. And I do think you're right. I think that not only does 
advertising represent uh, the culture and inform the culture, but it is a little bit of an archive, what we valued, how people were feeling and thinking. And so that's pretty awesome responsibility on your part. You know, it's a lot more than just making a cool ad. Right. And shouldn't we be looking back a hundred years from now and going, ew, what were they thinking? Yeah. That's the response we want. You're right, actually, because with growth should be a rejection of the past to some degree. I think that's really poignant and interesting. And I I do have to ask this as we close up a little bit here, because I could talk to you about this forever, but (laughs) we'll have another conversation over a glass of wine. Um, I know that in your bio, you talk about your kids, right? And you have a daughter and a son who are 12 and 11. Is that right? 13 and 12. Yep. I wonder as having a 13-year-old son and a 12-year-old daughter, how does that impact you? Because a lot of times I think we look at children wrongly as a liability for women, not for men. There's a fatherhood premium and a motherhood penalty. But you talked about humanity and being able to understand that we have to bring humanity to our work. And I wonder how having two children, if you could kind of tell us a little bit about what that means for you as mom slash CEO slash advertising goddess that you are, how does that all come together? If we're talking about the world of just having one of each. And, um, I think all the time I try to be really conscious and my husband does as well of the gender roles that we play in the household. So being really mindful, my daughter isn't the one that's tapped with her chore list to cook and clean and that my son's not tapped to shovel the driveway and take the garbage out. Um, And the truth is, those are the responsibilities in our home that I have and my husband has. And so it's natural that my son would think, well, that's what dad does. So that's what I do. And my husband just doesn't like to cook. So being then even that more intentional about mom cooks because dad doesn't enjoy doing it. Dad can put a meal together in a pinch, but I own it because I actually really like it. I like this. Not because it's your responsibility, but but because as a partnership, you've decided. I think it's so true the way that we put a narrative around Mm-hmm. something. Yeah. Isn't that what you do in advertising? You're creating the narratives around things. We are around culture. Like we just, yeah. talked about. and so then I do think often about, and this is interesting. I, I consider my daughter more than I consider my son in the work that I'm doing in the role that I play. And I think that's just because I can empathize with knowing what she's going to face versus what he might face to be even more specific here. I think how lucky I am to have this role And for her to see me in this role every day and for her to watch me. And even in this last two years to be able to actually get down and dirty with the work that I do, because they were sitting one room over listening to me all day long, but it's equally as important for my son to see his mother in a leadership position and being able to empathize and work with 100 people and help move them through one of the most challenging times in the history of humanity right now. So he's benefiting too, but if I'm being completely honest, I pay more attention to the message I'm sending to my daughter. Yeah. I I love that. I have two boys. So I do sometimes um, think about my son being raised by the host of the Advancing Women podcast and a gender (laughs) equity scholar. Um, I think it is true that we bring our experiences. And when we have younger children, you understand your impact. We see the impact firsthand in terms of when we let something slide and we allow messaging 
that has a connotation, you can see it as what does that connotation mean to my son? What does that connotation mean to my daughter? And I think that that is powerful. Life is built in tiny moments. I say it absolutely. All the time. Yes, you can have that kid on the bus that calls you bucktooth and you'll never forget it. And you'll hate your teeth for the rest of your life because that one silly kid made a comment about you. But those are few and far between in life. You can even think in your own experience of maybe two or three things that actually stand out as being impactful to you. But you've had a whole lifetime of impact and a whole lifetime of tiny moments that have created who you are. So I try to think about that. I love that because maybe that tiny moment is seeing yourself in the ad, believing that you belong in that world at that level, in that achievement, whatever it is, that that one time that you see someone who looks like you or reminds you of yourself that feels aspirational to you, having that mindset and understanding that awesome responsibility is such an important part of being good at what we do and at least trying and giving it our best effort to do the right thing because we understand that even though you're in an industry that's fun and entertaining, that your impact is significant. I always have a manifest statement, a quote or something that I share at the end. And I'm going to do a quote from Cindy Gallup, founder and uh, CEO of Make Love Not Porn. And if we ran the world, who said, quote, it's time and industry whose primary target is women, came together to dramatically raise the bar for creativity by prioritizing females and diverse talent and creative leadership, end quote. And I love that quote because it is, you know how I said before, it's an either or. It says, raise the bar for creativity by prioritizing female and diverse. It's not or, it's this is the way, this is the road to it. And I think much of raising the bar is having women like you, Kim, in those positions of power with a seat and a voice at the table. I'm here for it. I really love that. And I'm so appreciative. I know how busy you are for you to take the time to have this conversation. And I wish that we could be watching our Buffalo Bills play in the Super Bowl. Um, But since we can't, let's pay extra special attention to the ads. And uh, I thank you again. It's been fun. I really enjoyed this time. Let's do it again. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. For more resources, you can visit my website, www.advancingwomenpodcast.com and connect on Instagram at Advancing Women Podcast. I love getting your feedback. So please email me at Dr. D. Simone at advancingwomenpodcast.com. I just want to thank Joe Jacobs, the audio warrior who wrote the music for this podcast. And a huge thanks to Heather Harris, the creative warrior who designed the Advancing Women podcast logo. And thanks to all of you for joining me here today.